1987, China's gross domestic product, or GDP, was just shy of $273 billion. Sounds like a lot, right? Fast forward 30 years to 2017. GDP was over $12.2 trillion. That's over a 4,000% increase. In the same time frame, the U.S. experienced about a 300% increase. China has had huge economic success in the last 30 years. While it was once considered a mainly poor and rural country, it's become a global manufacturing power and a quickly growing middle-income economy. But until now, investors haven't been able to take part in its success. Chinese authorities have kept financial markets closed and prevented them from being integrated with the rest of the world. Now this is starting to change. The Chinese market is opening gradually, creating more and more opportunities for investors to take part. On this episode of The Bid, we'll speak to Jeff Shen, co-head of BlackRock's Systematic Active Equities Group, who believes the market opportunity in China is too big to ignore. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We hope you enjoy. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today on The Bid. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. And I should say welcome back because this is now your second time on the podcast, so I think you know how this works. I hope it's a good sign. Let's talk about China's growth. It's actually really impressive when you think about what they've been able to accomplish over the last 30 years. What's been the catalyst to that? I think number one is uh, China really started to reform starting in 1979. And you know, whenever we think about China, I always tell people that the three things that's actually most important, it is government, government, and also government. That certainly has been a major catalyst for the country to move from essentially a country that is quite a bit below poverty. Think about 90% of the population lived below poverty back in 1979, earning less than $1.90 a day. Fast forward to 2019, there is only less than 1% in this kind of extreme poverty. So I think the policy has certainly been the first most important driver. I think the second one is China joined the WTO in 2001. And that certainly allows China to open up to the rest of the world. And I think it's certainly gone from a country in the 60s and 70s that was actually quite isolated to the rest of the world to essentially having China come onto the world stage, whether it's trade, whether it's investment, that desire to interact with the rest of the world certainly allows the country to progress quite well since joining of the WTO. And so these are the two things that I think we've certainly seen this extraordinary economic growth that we haven't really seen in any other countries or at this type of scale in the human history. So certainly it has been pretty phenomenal. And you mentioned government. So back in 2015, China's president Xi Jinping unveiled the Made in China 2025 plan. What exactly are the details of that plan? And is this also one of the reasons why we've continued to see this extraordinary growth? Meeting 2025 is certainly a way to think about the next phase of economic growth for China. And uh, I think, if you will, it's this mindset in China that what got you here won't get you there. So for the next uh, every five years or 10 years, you've got to do something that's fundamentally different. And meeting China 2025 certainly emphasized from a growth perspective the country's got to go from the quantity of the growth into the quality of the growth. And to go for quality, essentially, you need to have a lot of technology to enable you to swim up on the value-added curve. And you know, there's quite a bit of discussion around electric cars 
AI, robotics, big data. So there's certainly quite a bit of emphasis on using technology to drive the economic growth going forward in this. And I think the one last thing I want to say that is I don't want people to leave an impression that's actually a bit of a new, new thing in the sense that China is actually pretty regiment about coming up with this kind of five-year plan, 10-year plan, 20-year plan. And the technology certainly has been in a bit of a DNA in the country. It certainly produces one of the largest science and engineering graduates in the world. I think it's important to think about this as actually not that much different from what the country has been doing over the last 30, 40 years. Is China unique in its ability to think more strategically about its economic plan? It feels like sometimes maybe we just hear a lot of the short-term news about quarterly growth in an economy, maybe a new piece of legislation. But what you're describing suggests that China thinks with a much longer time horizon than maybe other countries, other governments. Yes. I do think that maybe it's because the civilization has been around for a long time. There is certainly this long horizon planning, long horizon thinking, which I think sometimes is good, sometimes is bad. But I think it certainly helps for a country of 1.5 billion people to think in a longer horizon because otherwise things tend to um, go much slower. In 2015, we talk about Made in China 2025. That was also the time the government decided on artificial intelligence alone. There is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars that's going to be spent on these type of initiatives over the next five to 10 years. So this uh, certainly longer horizon allows the government to be much more decisive in driving some of its key initiatives. And you mentioned artificial intelligence. I think you mentioned robotics. So China's becoming a bigger player in technology. And so as they transition from being more about quantity of production to quality, it's certainly a benefit to China. But is that a benefit to the rest of the world or is it a threat to the rest of the world? I think there are two elements here. One is I do think that China is about one-sixth, one-seventh of the world's population. So from that perspective, if we can use technology, whether it's AI or big data or robotics, to make life of 1.4 billion people better, I think that's in itself is certainly a good thing for the human race. And I think as to the impact to the rest of the world, this is not necessarily a zero-sum game in the sense that the technology discovery will certainly benefit countries, not in a singular sense, but really in a plural sense across the globe. And I think that certainly has been the case in the scientific community. If there is a major breakthrough discovery, that type of discovery certainly tend to be beneficial to the overall community. At the same time, I do think that this is not going to the park to have a picnic either. I do think that there is some element of competitiveness in there in the sense that it does drive a bit of a competitive edge for different companies or government. You can also think a little bit along the line of the military. So I think that part is certainly, I think, also part of the reason that that's introducing some geopolitical tension because for the rest of the world, China does present a different economic growth model that is quite different from how we traditionally think about capitalism, that it should be. So I think that alternative model, as it gets stronger, as it gets infused with more AI and robotics, it does worry the rest of the world a bit. So you said geopolitical tensions, and it feels like the headlines that we read about China have those words in them all the time. And we sort of lose sight of the longer-term perspective of what's been going on from a growth perspective. What's your opinion on the trade war what is its impact on the Chinese economy? And how should we think about it in terms of investing in China? I think uh, the trade war can really be thought about as a bit of a tip of the iceberg. 
the trade deficit between China and the U.S. is certainly being around, being persistent. And I think that's certainly an issue that is quite a focal point. At the same time, I think underneath the surface, we can certainly mark 2018 as a year that the U.S.-China relationship has gone from uh, historically certainly has been a model of cooperation to the new phase of a model of competition. And I think given just the sheer size of the Chinese economy, even though on a per capita basis it's still a very below middle income type of developing country, but given the population size and also the transformation it's gone through, that certainly created a bit of a tension. It's actually not only with the U.S., it's actually also with the rest of the world. Think about state ownership, think about the political system. That is very different from a typical Western growth model. So I think not only the economic interest, but it's also what's the ideal way of growing that's presented to the rest of the world that is at stake here. So I think we are entering the phase of competition. That being said, that may not always be bad. A bit of a competition can potentially drive a bit of growth and innovation that we may not have seen before. So I don't think it's all bad, but at the same time, I do think that we need to recognize we're going into a new era. Does China think more about prioritizing growth and less so about managing some of these geopolitical relationships? I mean, that's what it sounds like listening to you talk, and that's what it sounds like will be the case, at least in the foreseeable future. But at some point, does China start to you know, sort of really think about the importance of maintaining more stability in some of these geopolitical relationships? Or will it always just be about growth? I think the rising tide certainly can lift out a lot of boats from a domestic perspective. I think growth can certainly lead to domestic stability, which if you think about the growth that's been happening in China over the last 40 years, that certainly allows the Communist Party to be much stronger and also extraordinarily well-liked in the country. So I think domestically, growth has actually been a recipe for success. It is the case that the economy is large enough. The global implication is certainly one that is sometimes is outside the Communist Party's direct control. If you think about the populism that we see around the developed country, a lot of the jobs have actually gone away in the developed country, either because of globalization or maybe actually importantly because of technology. But Nevertheless, you just need to go to some of the sort of manufacturing centers in some of the developed countries to realize that the China story rising up on the horizon certainly has a global implication. And that's something that I think China has to think about it. I think they've been forced to think about it. And so this is actually giving us additional context to think about not only just growth in its all form, but also what are the collateral damage or what are the opportunity costs of that growth, whether it's environment, whether it's global implication. These are the things that I think are additional problems as China rise up on the stage that it needs to think about. There's no question that the economic growth story in China is very impressive. It sounds like government plays a big role in that. It's having effects around the world on other economies. But then let's talk about the investment opportunity, because many times we hear about economies that are doing well, but that doesn't necessarily mean the stock market of that economy is doing well. When you think about the investment opportunity then in China, actually buying companies in China, is there a compelling case there, the way you've made a compelling case around the economy? I think uh, the relationship between growth and uh Investment returns is certainly a complicated one, and especially when it comes to China, I think it's even more complicated. You know, higher growth doesn't always necessarily mean if you just buy and hold a bunch of companies, you're going to make a lot of money. 
So I think in China, the exciting thing that happened in 2018 certainly has to do with the MSCI inclusion of the Chinese Asia market into a global equity market. And this is a certain market that historically international investors have had very little access to it. Most of the holdings have been through the domestic institutions and importantly domestic retail investors. So that market essentially are stocks that are traded in Shanghai and Shenzhen. That is opening up to the rest of the world through Stock Connect mostly. So that's a big deal in my mind that this is give or take around $8 trillion in market cap. And that's a big market that's actually opening up to the rest of the world. There are 2,000 plus stocks listed in there. The market trades 40 to $50 billion a day. So it's a large, deep market. And I think for investors who want to tap into the growth story of China, I think they certainly present a pretty rich opportunity set. Talk a little bit more about when you say that the markets are opening up, because I think for many investors, at least the way I think about it is that investing has become very democratized. It's a lot easier to invest in markets around the world. So it sounds like it wasn't easy to invest in China, maybe not so long ago, but what does opening up mean practically? Yeah, before, as international investors, certainly you can invest in Chinese Asia market, stocks listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen. But it was a pretty complicated process to do that. You need to go through what people typically call as a fee quota license to be able to invest in that. And it's a lengthy, a bit cumbersome process to go through that. It took us also a while to get a license to invest in that. We got it about seven years ago from the BlackRock as a firm perspective. Sometimes people joke that that's my second PhD in anthropology. It always takes a little bit longer to get the actual license. But I think fast forward today, when we say opening up, is that if international investor can invest in stocks in Hong Kong, now they can essentially invest in stocks in Chinese domestic Asia market. So I think it's very exciting for the international investors. The process is getting to be much more robust and open. You just need to pick the right ones. If I look at the S&P 500, I look at an index that's very diversified, companies of different sizes. The sector representation is pretty diverse. You have banks and you have tech companies and you have healthcare and the list goes on. If I were to look at the A-share market, in China, what does the composition of that market look like from a sector perspective? And talk a little bit about the corporate governance of the companies in China. Should we have the same level of confidence in corporate governance that we would maybe with like a U.S. or a European company? Yeah, I think the sectorial composition is also quite diversified. So whether it's MSCI indices for Chinese Asia market or locally, they also have a CSI 300 index. When you look at any of these sectorial compositions, they're actually quite similar to the rest of the world. They are quite diversified. It's a large economy that has not only got a state-owned enterprise, but it's also got a large representation of the privately owned companies. Some are exporters, some are also very much domestic-oriented. And I think the interesting thing of the Chinese Asia market is that you can also gain access to some of these domestic consumption stories that you probably historically haven't really been able to get that exposure through international equity market. Now, the corporate governance element of it, the typical perception is that for emerging market countries, sometimes these corporate governances may be a little bit below the international standard. The Chinese governance structure is actually quite strong. The stock exchange actually requires quite a bit of documentation, compliance, and information for any companies to be listed. And there's even quite a bit of requirement on the company to make 
profit for three years before they can even be considered as listed, especially in the main stock exchange in Shanghai. So I think the governance and also transparency and information and data, surprisingly, is actually quite abundantly available. Chinese economy is actually transforming very quickly into a digital economy. So from a data availability, transparency, information, you actually find a lot of that in China. That is actually oftentimes to people's surprise. In transparency, the Chinese consumer or the individual is a big user of technology and social media, and that leaves a pretty rich digital footprint. In your role, being able to access that data, I believe, is an important part of how you can analyze the investment opportunity. So, how is it that you use that big data to understand where are the better opportunities in China? Absolutely, I think China certainly is a. Great playing ground for using big data, using artificial intelligence to gain a bit of investment insight. For example, for fundamental information, you can actually use satellite image information to get a sense of the metallic content on the ground. Essentially, to get a sense of whether it's industrial manufacturer or the real estate companies where the metal frames of the buildings are coming up, to essentially get a sense of how industrial production is coming along, or whether there are trucks moving around port, or whether the building site is actually progressing at a normal pace. So you can measure fundamentals using this kind of alternative data source like satellite image to give you additional source of information to validate some of your prediction. Same thing through social media, you can certainly get a sense of some of the retail flow sentiment, just to get a sense of how the 130 million retail investors are they loving the stock market? Are they worried? What their mood is? This information certainly historically was never available because people didn't really. Blog or tweet about what they、uh, like, but today in aggregated form, you can get a sense of the overall market sentiment. So I think you can certainly use some of this new information, alternative data, to essentially enrich your understanding of the market. But I think a lot of it is also about asking the right question, making sure that with the new set of data, you can ask some interesting and relevant investment questions, and hopefully we can use new data, new tools to gain a bit of an edge. And what does the data not tell you? I imagine there's still a role for going to China, spending time there, talking to people. That supplements maybe some of the analysis that you've mentioned. I think、uh, I mean we use a lot of tools, a lot of models, and sometimes people think we are just a bunch of machines. But in reality, human plays an enormously important role in driving investment result. If you really want to understand what's going on with the government, we talk about how important that is. Certainly, it's very important to gain a bit of insight from the policymakers what's on their mind. Clearly, you can actually supplement that with a bit of a data science to. Look at some of the transcript people actually use to gain a bit of sense of what's on the policy maker's mind. But at the same time, I do think that a model at the end of the day or data, the insights you gain, is essentially a simplification of the world. And the world is pretty complicated. So I think the human's job is certainly around asking interesting questions, but it's also asking what is a model missing. The model has never seen a trade war in its life, but it's certainly. Going to be important going forward to think about how the new era is going to really mean for investment. So I think this is probably also why we love what we do because nothing will work forever, and you got to keep on innovating. And with a market as big and complicated as China, I'm sure having all those tools is something that helps a lot. We're going to end with a bit of a rapid fire round where I'll ask you a series of more 
personal questions. I hope you're ready. Absolutely. I know you live in San Francisco, so I have to ask, electric scooters or electric cars? I think electric scooters with helmet. So take risk, but with a bit of risk management. And is this your mode of transportation to work in the morning, or is that just on the weekends? Weekends. I walk to work. (laughs) Now, I've heard your daughter watches Shark Tank. Which shark do you prefer, Mark Cuban or Mr. Wonderful? I think Mr. Wonderful is a little bit scary for my kids, and Barbara Cochran is actually the family's favorite. Yeah, Mr. Wonderful is pretty honest, that's for sure. Which idea would you bring to Shark Tank? I love artificial intelligence, and I also certainly is a big fan of China. So I think maybe a Chinese restaurant with AI-driven robots as servers will be my idea. Okay, that's interesting. Now, you teach a course on international investing at NYU. I I happen to know because I was a student there, and I didn't have time to take your class, unfortunately. But what's the one word students would use to describe your teaching style? I think engaging may be the word. I do teach an intensive class there that involves six hours a day. So that's a lot of coffee and a lot of Q&A, and so it's a lot of fun. And then the last question, will China's stock market capitalization ever exceed that of the U.S.? I think possible, but I think I'm also a big believer of the U.S. market and U.S. system. Again, I mean, I think in this case, it's probably not China versus U.S., but it's the China and U.S. Both can be quite good. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your insights today and joining us on The Bid. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.